There was obstacles in 2022 when interest rates were ripping up, and now there's obstacles in 2023 as we face uncertainty. So it's not about can we create perfect environments, it's how adaptable can you be as an organization. Welcome to the Lead Sponsor, where we bring you exclusive access to the most successful and sought-after real estate syndication sponsors in the industry. Join us as we dive deep into the stories, strategies, struggles, and secrets of these elite professionals who are changing the game in commercial real estate investing. Whether you're an active sponsor looking to take your business to the next level, or a passive investor looking for the best operators in the country, the Lead Sponsor Podcast is for you. Hey guys, David Robinson here. Welcome to the Lead Sponsor Podcast. Uh, so excited about our guest today. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of repeat guests on the show, um, but we've been doing the show for, oh, roughly three years now, and uh, the guest that we have today is someone that I interviewed almost uh, over two years ago, and he's had an incredible journey since we interviewed him a little over two years ago, and so I'm super excited to have Sam Rust with us on the show. Sam, welcome. Thank you for coming on and talking with us again today. Well, it's good to be back, David. Thanks for the invite. So uh, Sam is a managing partner at LifeBridge Capital. Um, he and his partner, Whitney, have, ac have accomplished some great things over the last few years. When we talked with Sam uh, on our previous interview with him, uh, he actually hadn't formed LifeBridge Capital yet. Uh, he had, I believe you had just barely taken down your first deal. And we're in the process of exploring a partnership uh, with Whitney and form and actually formally building LifeBridge Capital. And we're going to get into that and how that sort of came to be. But uh, Sam, maybe if you can just give us an overview of what LifeBridge Capital is today, what you guys are focused on and how your business is structured. Yeah, thanks, David. Uh, happy to be back. LifeBridge Capital, as you mentioned, has grown quite a bit since its inception about five years ago. That's when Whitney Sewell started it. Um, he's uh, by far the, the more famous and better looking uh, of the managing partners. Um, but uh, today we are focused on multifamily real estate. So we're a syndication group. We've got about 400 million in assets under management, um, primarily in the Rocky Mountains. We're starting to expand into some other markets. Uh, big step for us in 2022 was we launched LifeBridge Management, which is a vertically integrated property management team. So all of our units um, are being managed in-house. Uh, that was a big project, still is a big project, um, but we're starting to see the dividends there. So we've grown very significantly. Um, in addition to the management arm, we've got uh, several folks in investor relations, um, in acquisitions, um, and then uh, starting to, to build out uh, kind of a back office team as well. So it's been uh, kind of growing all over the place, starting out with just Whitney and I uh, three or four years ago um, and, and moving to where we are today. Uh, how is your business structured? Obviously, you have you and Whitney, um, but maybe uh, describe for us uh, any other key personnel in the business. Yeah, I think the so Whitney and I are the managing partners of LifeBridge Capital. Um, and then we hired a gentleman by the name of Sutton Turner to come on board. Um, who is a partner in LifeBridge Management um, and operates as the CEO of that business. He has 20 years of experience in managing um, both third-party and owner-managed. Um, we originally brought him on board to actually be an asset manager um, and then uh, transitioned over to uh, starting LifeBridge Management. So, um, you know, from there, um, 
we're in the process of um, searching for a director of acquisitions type position. Um, believe that we've got a candidate pretty well nailed down, but those would be like the two more senior level folks. Um, and then we've got several folks in investor relations, some more forward facing, some more back end facing, uh, managing investor portals and details like K1 generation and tax questions and things like that. Uh, there's a, a myriad of those. Um, as our investor base has grown, we've needed to make sure that we staff up accordingly so that we can be proactive in communicating um, both condition of property, gauging interest in deals, and also just managing the deals that we already have. And how would you say the duties and responsibilities inside of LifeBridge Capital are split between you and Whitney? You know, it's not, uh, it's very common to have two founding or three founding members of a firm. And there's always some variances on how responsibilities are divided and who focuses on what. Maybe describe for us how your relationship with Whitney works inside of the firm. Yeah, uh, I think our skill sets really complement each other very well. Um, Whitney is really focused on the capital raising piece, as you would imagine, um, with his show and uh, various connections that he's made in the industry over the last five years. Um, so he leads that part of our business. And then we've implemented um, a version of EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System um, by Gino Wickman, that's kind of gained some traction in small business circles. We've implemented a version of that into our business in 2022 as well. And Whitney has really led the charge on that. Um, so I would say capital raising and internal business ops um, is where he spoke, focuses his time. And then I focus my time on a combination of asset management, um, kind of that bridge between our property management firm and our pro formas and then uh, acquisitions as well. So it's been a, a pretty clean divide of responsibilities. Uh, we try to work very closely together um, and uh, yeah, continue to move the ball forward. So hopefully uh, over the next six months, we'll, we'll have some more capabilities, especially on the acquisition side. And I'll be able to focus a little bit more on asset management. Um, that seems to be the direction that we're headed. Um, but a lot of that is also uh, market condition specific and, and what can we accomplish over the next six months or so? Um, will there be deals to be had? Um, you know, there's certainly some uncertainty in the market and we want to, we want to grow. That's our goal. Uh, we have some, some big, hairy, audacious goals, if you're familiar with the uh, language from EOS. Um, but we're not going to compromise on deal quality. Um, and so we're going to we're going to grow as fast as we can find those right deals. And you mentioned roughly 400 million in assets under management. Um, how many deals have you guys acquired since you guys actually, uh, uh, you know, came together as LifeBridge Capital? We're up over, I think we're at 13 deals now. Um, right. So we've, we've done a pretty good number. We've gone full cycle on some. Um, so there's been some trade out. Um, but yeah, we have roughly 100 or 1,500 units right now. Great. Excellent. And have you integrated LifeBridge management into your entire portfolio or are some of those still managed by third party? No, we've um, integrated completely. So all of our units are completely in-house. Um, we have decent concentrations. Um, so we have quite a few units in Colorado Springs and then um, a number here in Boise, Idaho. Um, I have been in Colorado for eight years um, and then moved last fall back to the Boise area, which is where my wife and I are originally from. So I'm a little bit closer to uh, some of our assets here. Um, and now we're starting to expand to some Midwest markets. We have an asset in Dallas-Fort Worth area that we also manage. Um, and yeah, just excited for the opportunities that are on the horizon. 
Cool. Well, let's. Uh, I, I appreciate you giving us an overview of what LifeBridge looks like today. I want to back up and I want to talk about this journey that you've been on over the last handful of years, right? Um, just for the listeners that may not have heard our previous interview, uh, give us a little bit of background about yourself, uh, what you were doing professionally before you got into the real estate world, and then how you made that transition into the real estate syndication space. Yeah, um, short version, um, grew up in Idaho, um, went to work for a family business in the industrial automation space, um, kind of a manufacturer's rep style sales organization um, out of college, uh, moved to Salt Lake City in 2011, and then did a, took a transfer out to Denver in 2014. Um, I'm married, um, have a wonderful wife, Becca, six kids now. Um, so we had a growing family um, and we moved out to Denver and uh, in about 2017, I had a I had negotiated for an all commission style structure um, and managed to break some goals and um, ended up doubling my sales goal in 2017 by July. And so I, I had some income that I could wanted to invest and was looking at all sorts of different ways to whether it was paying off a house or investing in the market and wanted to find something that would take my skill set and what I perceive to be project management and uh, and working with people and statistical analysis, what could I do that kind of encompass those areas and where I could impact the value of the investment? So I started listening to a bunch of different podcasts, um, exploring all sorts of different things, including real estate. That's I think that's high on everybody's list when they think of investing. Came across the idea of syndication through a couple of uh, episodes of the Bigger Pockets podcast. And one of the things that um, stuck out to me um, was several of the folks who were interviewed, and this would have been, again, 2017-ish or so, so the original Bigger Pocket show with Josh and Brandon, um, but several of the guests that they had on that were syndicators had started as fix and flippers. And when they would get to the part of the interview where they ask, hey, would you change anything about your journey? They all said, I wish I had gone bigger faster. Um, I wish I had uh, left the single family behind. It, they actually, you don't need that experience. Um, necessarily, um, if you have the ability to raise the capital and find a good deal. Um, and I felt pretty confident in my ability to raise capital for a deal. I just had never underwritten a multifamily deal. So I went out um, and uh, started, I built my own underwriting model, uh, which I, I discarded after the first deal. It worked. Um, and it taught me the math behind uh, multifamily syndication. I think it's really important if you're starting out on the acquisition side, to be able to have a really solid grasp on the numbers, you should be able to look at a deal, do even some internal calculations, and in like 30 seconds, approximately have an idea of where the investor returns are going to shake out, where is the shaky part of the deal, what are the risks, what is the upside, what is the potential business plan. Obviously, there's a ton more research that goes into actually landing a deal, um, but you really have to immerse yourself in the basic math. And so I did that. I went to LoopNet, underwrote 100 deals, um, trying to figure out why are these deals on LoopNet. LoopNet is where good deals go to die, you know, 99 times out of 100. And so that was uh, how I trained myself, reached, started reaching out to brokers, landed my first deal, which I think is what we highlighted in our first episode. It was a little 64 unit in Colorado Springs, um, value add 70s deal. Um, and we were able to get that thing closed. Um, so from there, hey, I gotta uh, ask. I gotta yeah. ask. I gotta cut in here on that sixty-four unit. Have you sold that? Do you still own it? We did sell it. Yeah. So we okay. bought it for uh, seven and a half million in twenty eighteen. Closed on it in October. We sold it in March of twenty twenty two. Yeah, last year. Um, okay, last year. 
Uh, I had to think about that for a second um, and basically delivered a, a, about a 95% return to our investors. <laughs> um, so it was uh, you know, certainly right timing. Yeah. Um, I, I think that starting when Whitney and I did, uh, there was a lot of um, good fortune, good providence in that um, and don't want to discount that. I think one of the, the dangers in any business is ascribing to your own genius um, outside market forces. Um, and, and so you know, want to be clear that uh, that was a good time to buy. It was also a good asset and we bought into a burgeoning area in Colorado Springs. So, um, you know, some some mix of providence and, uh, and, and picking wisely, as it were. So. so that was your first, you know, foray into the space, the 64 unit. Uh, if I remember correctly, you mainly raised from family and friends uh, to take down that deal. And about this time, uh, I believe, is when you started to explore partnership opportunities and you and Whitney connected. Maybe just talk to us about how that relationship came to be. Yeah, so that deal, we closed in October of 2018. By December of 2018, we were uh, we had pushed rents to where we were getting pro forma post-renovation rents for unrenovated units. And it was just obvious that the deal was going to work out really well. Um, and it felt to my wife and I like there was doors being opened and that there was an opportunity um, to maybe explore jumping into real estate full time. By that point, I had honed my podcast listening efforts around a, a lot of real estate syndication specific shows. Um, and everybody would say, you know, your first deal is your hardest. And and there was a lot of challenges along the way, but it wasn't exceedingly difficult. And I was like, well, if this is the hardest, I should probably try to do this again. But if I'm going to do this again, there's so many moving parts um, I need to find a partner. Uh, and that idea was kind of overwhelming to me. Um, you know, finding somebody who you would view as a long-term business partner, that's no small undertaking. I mean, that's probably the most significant relationship in your life outside of your wife and kids. It's a second marriage. And, and that's how my wife and I were looking at it. And it's like, okay, up to that point, I hadn't done any coaching programs. I wasn't part of any mentoring groups. I just read books and listened to podcasts. Hadn't gone to a single conference. It's like, I should probably go um, to a conference. So I started looking for what's a good conference that's where users go or people who are in the space. It's not necessarily a coaching conference. You know, coaching conferences are fine. They're, they serve a lot of people well, but I didn't want to be sold the course. I wanted to be in a room where there was folks who were actually doing deals um, and happened across Joe Fairless's best ever conference. And um, it used to be hosted in Denver every year. I was like, well, this is perfect. This seems like the kind of conference with uh, the people that I'd want to meet. Um, it's right in my backyard. Let's uh, dip my toe in the water there. Um, I started networking with a few people um, on the Whova app and uh, met a, a gentleman out of North Carolina who um, ended up introducing me at the conference to Whitney. Um, we were standing talking in the foyer and yeah, we were getting ready to go to dinner. He's like, oh, here comes Whitney. Like, hey, we should have Whitney join us for dinner. Whitney and I ended up sitting next to each other. Um, we're both men of faith. So we shared our testimony almost immediately. It's just one of those things. And we started hitting it off and realized that, oh, we had a lot in common. Not only were we, did we have a common faith background that was very important to both of us. Um, we had complementary skill sets. He had his podcast. I had already done a deal. We were at very similar points in our growth trajectory. Uh, we had young families uh, at the time. I think I had three kids and number four was on the way and he had two kids and was in the process of adopting his third. Um, you know, we both homeschool our children. So we appreciate the same things about lifestyle. Um, we both had um, large ambition. Um, we wanted to grow. We, we, weren't, we didn't want to just get to, uh, you know, uh, 500 units. We, we had a vision for something bigger. 
Um, and so we just started talking. I invited him. Uh, he actually approached me at the end of the conference about partnering. Um, like I invited him over. He had a red eye flight out. So I, I said, well, you got to meet my wife. Um, so I took him home at like 10 in the evening. We, uh, we had some late night coffee and uh, got to know each other a little bit and then just started doing some Zoom calls together as couples and, and Whitney and I talking through business deals. Um, at that time, I had my second deal almost under contract. We were negotiating a PSA. It was 180 units, again, in Colorado Springs. Um, and we decided that the best way to figure out if this partnership was going to work was to do kind of a limited one-off partnership on this deal. Um, so we landed a contract in March of 2019. Um, we met in February of 2019. We worked on the raise together. We got all the capital in. Um, and by May, by the time we had that deal closed, it was very obvious to both of us that um, you know it, it was a providential meeting, that we, that we were meant to work together um, and that uh, this was going to be a, a solid partnership. And so I ended up um, leaving my full-time position at the family business in August of 2019, um, starting full-time at LifeBridge Capital then. Um, and then once we did our next deal, which closed in March of uh, 2020, um, Whitney was able to leave his position, um, and we've been, uh, moving forward ever since. Love it. That's a great story. Um, I'm curious if you had attempted any, uh, connections with potential partners that didn't sort of pan out. Um, maybe you thought, Hey, this is someone that I could potentially work with, uh, or was it really just things just aligned with Whitney perfectly because there's so many sponsors out there that want to find the perfect partner, but it is a challenging endeavor. And so maybe just some insight. Was it just happenstance? And obviously, you know, you feel it was providential, as you say. Um, but did you have any false starts with other would-be partners before this connection with Whitney? Yeah, I meet so many people and interview so many people on the real estate syndication show that that have gone through partners or partnered with the wrong person early. Um, in that, I'm not sure that my story is particularly instructive because I didn't have any false starts. Um, really, the first person I ever had a partnership conversation with was Whitney. So I've only had the conversation once, um, and and I'm thankful for that. Um, I, I think. Yeah, it was just one of those things where we met each other at the perfect time and it was preordained that that would take place. So, you know, I know that a lot of people had approached Whitney. I think part of it was he was a lot more known in the space, in our little pool. Um, you know, I, I hadn't met anybody. I hadn't gone to any conferences. You know, I was very much under the radar. Um, and so they're just there just wasn't the same opportunities. Um, but I know that Whitney had had a lot of opportunities to partner with people and was looking for that right person, that alignment of values. Uh, and I think that that's something that I would just encourage listeners who are looking for a partner is don't be hasty. Um, when Whitney and I met, um, and we had our first partnership conference, the, the closing dinner of best ever. And I know, I think both of us felt after that three hour conversation that we had found our partner. And yet it took us another four months before we agreed that we were partners. Um, and, and I think that that 
lengthy due diligence process is really important. We've um, I mentioned Sutton, um, our leader on the property management side. We have a, a candidate that we um, expect to bring on in the next six weeks on the acquisition side. Um, and both of those pursuits were really lengthy. Um, you know, some of our positions we filled relatively quickly. Um, but for those senior level roles and a partner is the most senior of those, uh, it's just so important to not rush the process, um, to really follow your gut in a lot of ways, and then verify that what your gut is telling you is correct. Um, I think that that's something that Whitney and I have learned a lot is, you know, first impressions, they are usually meaningful, particularly if you've had some experience in the business world and, and you've, you have a track record of your, your gut instinct paying off, listen to it, but then don't let that be the sole guide. Um, you know, if, if your gut is telling you this is a good person, we'll ask the questions, put them in situations to see if that's true um, or to pull out skill sets or character traits, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yeah, and just step through those things. Don't take shortcuts in the partnership process or in the hiring process for that matter. Yeah, great advice. So um, I want to push the conversation forward a little bit and talk about where we're at in this market cycle. Um, you and Whitney, you know, have had a great run. You've acquired roughly 13 deals. You have 1,500 units under management. Um, what is your outlook on the market today? And how has your business changed from 2021-2022 to what your business looks like today and the functionality and the effort inside of your business? I know that's a broad question. I'm just trying to get a sense for our listeners of what your world looked like for the previous two years and what it's looked like for the last 10 months and how that has changed and how you've had to adapt. Yes, I think there's... Two lenses that I'll answer that question. One um, is just the, the natural growth curve of our company. Two years ago, um, it was Whitney and I. We both had executive assistants, and uh, we had one investor relations jack-of-all-trades person who did a lot of back-office stuff. Um, we had good people in every position, but, man, were we doing a lot of work. Um, and there was just so many things. I mean, the, the daily podcast trying to acquire deals, managing the deals we had. It was just, there was a lot going on and not very many people on the team. Um, and over the last 18 months, we've hired quite a few people. And now we've got a really solid team where I don't have to create all the graphics for an investment summary. I don't have to do the first, second, or third pass at underwriting on a deal. Um, I don't have to... Um, yeah, so many, so many things that I no longer have to do the grunt work. Um, and I, I think that that's really important is as you're growing a business, you will rise ultimately, I believe, to the level to which you can delegate to competent teammates, um, which requires hiring competent teammates um, and then giving them responsibility and accountability and ownership of their deliverables. Um, and so that's been something that we've been focused on. So I think where we sit today you know, we're, we're getting ready to go under contract on a deal. And, and the process has been night and day different um, from the last 
I'll call it a true acquisition, which we did back, uh, our last true acquisition really started in Q4 of 2021, um, as far as all the underwriting process and pulling together investment summaries. Um, and it's to have that level of capability on the team has been phenomenal um, and has allowed us to do a better job for our investors. Um, it's allowed us to underwrite more deals than ever before. We've under, we underwrote more deals in the last six months of 2022 than we had in the prior three years combined. Um, now we acquired nothing um, or next to nothing. Um, and that was due to market forces, but that doesn't change the fact that we were putting so much more into the top of the funnel. Um, and that only goes to serve our investors. So, so that's one lens, right? It's just the natural growth curve of LifeBridge Capital. Overlay that with market forces. Um, 2021 um, and 2020, frankly, were both really strong acquisition years for us. We started acquiring in April of 2020. Um, we, Whitney and I were pretty comfortable with COVID in the sense of it not being a, a society-altering event based on 5% of the population dying. If you remember, that's where we were in like March. Um, and it became apparent, I would say, by the end of March that that just wasn't going to be the case. COVID was terrible. There were so many bad things about it, so many bad things about our pol political response to COVID. We're not going to dive into that. But suffice it to say that it wasn't a, a trend-altering event for multifamily, we believed. And so we bought a ton of real estate in 2020 and a bunch more in 2021. Um but since then, it's been very, very challenging. Um, as you and your listeners know, interest rates have blown up. Um, cap rates have um, come up as well a little bit, um, not as much as debt has come up, but it's just made deals a lot harder to pencil. When you're syndicating capital, we need to have some modicum of cash flow, um, and that just gets harder. You know, when one of the ratios that we look at, or we did look at, was what is our cap rate, what's our coming in cash flow, and what's our debt rate? And we tried to have a positive spread um, where that cap incoming cap rate was like 100 to 200 bips over the cost of debt. That's pretty typical. Uh, it's not rocket science, but it's a helpful ratio to keep an eye on. Um, and that ratio has gone negative on a lot of projects, um, which functionally means it's almost impossible to get cash flow unless you're taking on a really heavy value add and you're putting a lot of sweat into it which is hard when you have supply chain issues like we're having and labor shortages and on and on and on. Um, plus, it seems like we're headed now into some sort of economic upheaval. Uh, I just There's a consensus that we're headed towards a recession, whether the Fed can achieve a soft landing or not, I don't know. Um, but there's a lot of uncertainty ahead. And I think that COVID pulled forward a lot of demand and household formation. Um, and so that's part of what made 2020 and 21 a really good run up for us um, in the multifamily space. And now demand has fallen off a little bit. And I think we're going to see uh, rent stabilize um, in many markets moving forward. So, um, you know, our, our costs of running a business have gone up as we've brought more employees on. Um, you know, we haven't been doing as many deals. Um, you know, thankfully, we had a lot of forced appreciation along the way, um, and we were able to offload a couple of deals at the right time. Um, but it certainly, last year, the last six months, we were putting in a lot of offers, um, but we were off, I think our average was we were off by over 30% on what the properties actually ended up trading at. We didn't make it into one best and final from June to November. And then in November, we started making it into a few best and finals. 
Um, and, and now there's a lot more deals to be had that are closer to penciling. Um, you know, you still, you sift through and, you know, for every deal you find, you probably looked at 60 or 70 deals. Um, but last year it was, we were looking at a hundred deals and not finding one. So, um, I'm, I, I think there's a lot of uncertainty in the marketplace where there's uncertainty, there's opportunity. Um, and, and we're looking for those right opportunities to seize the moment. You guys have started to explore outside of your general region there in the Rocky Mountain region, uh, Idaho, Colorado. Um, what What is causing that? What's causing you to look into other markets at this point? I think evaluating the landscape. So we bought primarily in the Rockies, um, which are a quintessential sexy market, right? You've got fantastic job growth. You've got good demographics, population growing, all those things which is going to drive demand. It also really pushed down cap rates. Um, Rocky Mountain markets had some of the lowest cap rates um, for non-primary markets, we'll say, you know, something coastal, New York, San Francisco, et cetera. Um, there's just been phenomenal growth. Um, I think that that's going to continue and we would love to do more deals in that market. But back half of 2021 into 2022, it became harder and harder, especially once interest rates really started taking off, became much harder to uh, pull deals together that penciled. Um, and part of that is there is capital looking for a home. There's so much capital that wants to invest in multifamily. And a lot of it is willing to accept lower rates of return. Um, and they're willing to be more aggressive in their underwriting. Um, and so we kept being beat out. Um, we also were hearing from our investors that they loved the upside potential but the volatility is something that is concerning, right? What goes up must come down. Um, you know, we're not in the Phoenix market, um, but Phoenix traditionally or Vegas would be another one that's kind of the, the traditional boom bust. You know, when it's good, it's amazing. When it's bad, it sucks. Um, and, and people were wary of having all of their assets in one particular area, right? That, that is exposed to the same general gem demographic trends. So there's investor demand. There's also people who would really like to invest for cash flow. So, so we start thinking, okay, well, what, what's happening economically right now? Um, COVID happened. We exposed the whole just-in-time inventory concept as a globe. Um, just-in-time works really well and is very efficient until it doesn't. Um, and, and it just flat out doesn't work very well right now. Um, you can throw in geopolitical tensions. You can throw in um, different responses to COVID. Um, I, I think that we've seen massive instability. And so what's going to happen as a result? Well, we're seeing a big reshoring of industry. Where is that industry going to go? Uh, it's primarily going to look for places that are relatively business friendly, that have affordable energy and cheap transportation um, and relatively... Um, uh, affordable places to land. So cheaper ground and good workforce. That sounds a lot like the Midwest. Um, you think of uh, anywhere near a waterway, you're going to have cheaper shipping. The Midwest tends to have lower energy prices. Um, and there's, there's a lot of older infrastructure that could be converted or is already zoned for the appropriate uses. So you know, that's a macro trend. What happened in multifamily or what, you know, what has the Midwest done? And when we say Midwest, some of our avatar cities would include Kansas City, Columbus, um, even places like Fayetteville, um, Oklahoma City, some of those areas. Um, 
you know, cap rates didn't go down as low. Um, you know, and as a result, yields were higher. Now, rent growth wasn't as high either. Um, so you're kind of accepting a lower ceiling in exchange for a higher floor. Um, and as the market cycle has changed, we believe that that's a really sellable business case is, hey, you know, like like some of our deals, we've delivered like a 45% IRR on a couple of deals. Like that's, that's ridiculous. Um, we're probably not going to do that. We're probably not going to sniff 25%, even if all the things came together. But if we can deliver a, a solid teen IRR on a five-year hold on a quality asset in a Midwest market, that's going to beat most things in the market. Um, and so our general thesis is we're going to continue to chase assets in these high growth areas as we find them. And then we're going to look for nicer apartments in um, the right Midwestern markets. So we're stepping up the food chain a little bit, getting assets that aren't going to require quite as much work, don't quite have, a, have quite as much execution risk. Um, they're going to have a little bit lower return in exchange for stability. Um, and uh, so we're, we're on the hunt um, and uh, excited to, to prove out that thesis over the next 18 to 24 months. Well, I appreciate you going into some detail. Um, you know, a lot of our, I, I wouldn't say a lot of our guests, but sometimes we have guests that are a little reticent to share sort of their thesis and their thinking about you know, why they are looking in certain markets or others, but such a, a very logical approach based upon input from your investor network. Like what, what, are, what are your investors looking for? What do they want based upon where we're at in the market cycle and how can we help them go achieve that while also resetting investor expectations? I, I, you know, I think that's all of us are having to go through that process of helping people realize that 45% return uh, probably isn't realistic moving forward and sort of resetting those expectations and uh, adjusting to the market, but also the investor desire is important. So thanks for sharing that detail. Yeah, um, I want to move to a, another part of this interview and talk about a, a, a case study, a, a deal that you've worked on in the past. Uh, you've got this 160 unit class A new build in Nampa, Idaho. And so let's go into some details about that. Just describe the, the project for us at a high level, and then we can dive into some of the details. Yeah, so it's called Breckenridge Apartments, um, 160 units, as you mentioned. Our first project in Idaho um, was built not too far away from Breckenridge um, by a local developer. We bought it from him about a year and a half after it stabilized. We bought it during COVID. Um, and that developer approached us in 2020 2021, I should say, and said, hey, I've got this project coming up called Breckenridge. Um, I would like to pre-sell it um, and do a fixed price contract. Are you open to that? Um, so it's kind of a unique proposition, right? Uh, so we did some research and, and he was willing to sell it to us at a, a pretty reasonable cap rate. We'd be coming in at like a five and three quarter cap rate on, on his pro forma and you know, we did the numbers and we thought you know, maybe it's a little bit better than he said. He was doing self-management and we thought we could do th uh, push rents a little bit higher. Um, the catch was uh, the overall project was going to be in the neighborhood of 30 million. He wanted four and a half million down and released to him um, in earnest money um, so that he could go build the project with very little money out of pocket. So that's there's some risk involved in that, right? Um, I wouldn't have even... Well, 
I don't know if I'd say that, but it would have been a much harder sell for me if we hadn't have already worked with this developer and knew the quality of project. He was building a carbon copy of our first one. It was the same floor plans, same unit mix, almost the exact same size, not too far away. The project that our first project would have been 100% occupied basically at the entirety of its existence. So we had a lot of familiarity all the way around. We did a lot of due diligence, called a lot of references, um, you know, worked through a contract structure that was agreeable and ended up going under contract summer of 2021 uh, with the agreement that we would close within 30 days of getting um, the final certificate of occupancy, which was slated for May of 2022. Um, nothing ever goes according to plan, especially when you're trying to construct during a pandemic. Um, as you can imagine, there's tons of supply delays. Um, the project uh, rents grew dramatically, um, dramatically. Um, and so on the one hand, that's happening. Value of the project is going up. On the other hand, we're getting all these delays. Interest rates are rising. It's like it's going to be a race to see what will happen first. Will the rents keep climbing and or will, <laughs> will debt come to bite us in the butt? Ultimately, um, they got their final CO in September. We had planned on being able to take over it at full occupancy, but by the time they delivered it, we had hit a slower time in leasing season. We were about 65% occupied. We had financing all lined up um, at a higher interest rate than we wanted, but it was gonna be doable and be fine. Um, and then the bank pulled out on us. Um, a local, I should say a regional bank um, left $500 million in loans on the same day. And their CEO canceled all outstanding loans in their pipeline. Um, so we were left scrambling. That was about two weeks before we had to close. Um, we had four and a half million out the door. You know, that's, that's there's just a lot going on. Um, thankfully, we got an appraisal back um, like a couple days. I think it was a couple days right after we had uh, had the lender blow out. Um, our purchase price was thirty million on this project, and our project appraised for thirty eight million, which I actually think was a low figure. But we had built in a lot of equity. Um, with this deal. And so we went, we were able to get an extension with the owner um, and worked our way through several different debt options and ultimately ended up finding a bridge lender that would give us a decent leverage deal, pretty high interest rate, but allow us to get closed um, inside of our timeline. So we ended up closing on that deal in November of last year, getting our management team in place. Um, and now actually this morning, um, we just went under app um, through Fannie Mae. We're getting ready to do a refinance, pull that bridge debt off, get some long-term financing on there um, and, and let that thing tick into the future. You know, what has been the result for investors so far? Um, cash flow is gonna be less than we had projected um, in large part because the cost of debt had gone up. However, the equity that we've gained is significantly more than we had underwritten to. Um, so we, we basically will walk in, we walked into uh, almost uh, like an 80% growth in equity the minute we closed. Um, so there's a lot of value locked in this asset. Um, it's a class A asset in a growing area, lots of development happening around it. You know, really believe in the thesis of the Treasure Valley, the Boise MSA. Um, and it's gonna be one of those long-term holds for us where we, uh, we bought in the path of progress. We're gonna let the area grow around it and. Uh, let it spin off cash flow for the next 10 years, probably. I'm curious, just on one small piece, uh, with the deal that you worked out with the developer, the builder, did he stay in the deal with you uh, or did he exit after you know uh, the purchase? He exited, hmm. he, uh, he did not. He's one of those guys, developers are an interesting breed. They have a very high risk tolerance. 
Um, and they love doing deals and building things. Um, and the more I deal with them, it's just, it's a, it's a personality mm. type. And they don't like having money, in their minds, locked in. Um, and, and that makes sense to some degree. Um, you think about this deal, you know, I would guess we paid 30 million for it. He came out of pocket with almost nothing. I think that our four and a half million down probably funded construction. He probably had land costs of, we'll call it 2 million. And he probably made 5 million mm -hmm. on the deal. Um, and, and so he, you know, a 250% return or 150% return. Um, like, yeah, why would I not keep doing that? You know, we look at that as syndicators and like, well, you left so much value on the table. If you just waited to sell it until you got to the end, you could have gotten a ton more. Um, uh, but they've, they've realized who they are as developers and want to just roll those proceeds forward and into the next bigger and better venture. And having sort of a taste of the development world now, obviously not being, you know, you know, boots on the ground developing, but having a sideline approach to watching it happen and being committed on a development deal once it uh, was ready. Do you have an interest in pursuing development opportunities in the future or are you uh, does this confirm for you that you would like to stay more focused on existing value add opportunities? So we actually have a development in process. Um, it's 120 units, um, kind of a build the rent style community, a bunch of townhomes and a few single family homes. Um, we're looking to probably sell that. We, we entitled it and we did the horizontal mm. work and now we're looking to sell it to somebody who will take it vertical. Um, between all of our experiences, I don't, for where we are in the cycle, I don't want to be a developer. Um, I, I think partnering with developers is a unique way to get really good product at a pretty affordable price point. Um, and so willing to explore similar structures to Breckenridge. Um, I, I think there's a lot that goes into development. Um, it is, you know, it's a lot and then it's more than meets the eye even still. <laughs> Um, and there's just a lot of risk inherent to these projects. You know, there's such a long time horizon. You're probably three years from when you first find the ground to when you finally get your last unit delivered. Three years is an age, um, in the economy and so many things can change. Um, and it really becomes important to buy right, um, and to have excellent partners all the way around. So I wouldn't say we'll never do development again. I just don't think we'll do another one until the economy is in a better position, uh, which is kind of every developer ever. You know, you look at multifamily starts right now, permitting is down, way down um, from the cycle highs. Um, and I think we're going to see a pretty big pullback in construction over the next, call it six to 12 months until cost of debt comes down. Love it. Well, Sam, we've been going for about 45 minutes here. Um, I want to start winding down. I've enjoyed our conversation, enjoyed hearing the story about you, how you and Whitney have grown. Love to hear your insights about what's happening in the market today and how you guys have adapted your business to the market. Um, before I let you go, a few final questions. The first is, what's the biggest challenge that you guys have faced in growing your business to what it's uh, become today? Biggest challenge, I think it's building the right team. Um, and, and, and I mean that in a positive sense. Um, we've, we haven't had a lot of turnover in our business, um, but assembling the right people has been, has required a lot of intentional effort. 
Um, and, and so it hasn't, you know, you know, everything else I would say has been largely secondary. Um, I, I think that, uh, yeah, that, that single piece has been a positive challenge for us, um, to, to surmount and, uh, and get the right people in the right seats. So follow up question to that. Um, what is the most critical next hire for your company and why? The most critical next hire um, for us. So I, I believe that we've got this director of acquisitions role filled. Um, hopefully hoping to make an announcement soon on that. Um, after that, I think the next one is going to be marketing. Somebody with the marketing capability, um, some specific ability in Salesforce. Um, we've transitioned over to Salesforce as our CRM. So somebody that can help us drive forward and drive visibility and traffic for LifeBridge Capital. Um, you know, it's, you're always balancing the deals capital conundrum. You know, I need more deals. I need more capital. You can never solve both of those problems at the same time. Um, you always have more of one than the other. So recently we've had more capital than deals. I anticipate that to change as sentiment has changed in the marketplace. I think we're going to find more deals and we're going to need to reach out and, and tap more people on the shoulder. So getting more, more investors in the top of funnel will be important for us. Love it. One thing I've started to do as I end the show is I ask our current guests what question they would like us to ask our next guest. So I'll, uh, I'll ask you that. Uh, what question would you like us to ask the next guest that we have on the show? Uh, the, the snide part of me wants to say, where's the 10-year treasury going to be in three months? Um. <laughs> we could go there. We could go there, but it would be like everybody else. I have no crystal ball. Yeah, yeah. Then we're all just monkeys yeah. thrown at dartboard, right? Um, uh, I, I think how are they building a culture that will uh, overcome obstacles? Mm. Um, there will always be obstacles. There was obstacles in 2019 when Whitney and I met. There were obstacles in 2020 when COVID started. There was obstacles in 2021 when the market was just ripping up. There was obstacles in 2022 when interest rates were ripping up. And now there's obstacles in 2023 as we face uncertainty. So it's not about... Can we create perfect environments? It's how adaptable can you be as an organization? So Love it. I would be curious for your next guest to answer that question. We'll use that. Well, Sam, this has been a great conversation. I'm glad that we've had a chance to connect. Um, I have uh, you know, a, a connection to you through Whitney and Whitney's been a great mentor to me and been very helpful in my business and grateful for the both of you and what you do in the real estate investing community with your education platform and being willing to share with our listeners about your business, helping people along the way. Before I let you go, what's the best way for our listeners to connect with you and learn more about what you guys have going on? Yeah, I'm uh, active on Twitter, actually. Um, so if you want to give me a follow there, at Sam Rust, tend to focus on uh, real estate happenings over there. There's a good community of people on Twitter. Um, it's becoming the marketplace of ideas. I'm excited about the future of that social media platform. Um, I'm also active on LinkedIn, um, or you can reach out directly through our uh, website, lifebridgecapital.com. Perfect. We'll have that in the show notes. So if you've enjoyed our conversation with Sam today, go down into the show notes and click on one of those links to connect with Sam and the LifeBridge Capital team. Sam, thank you so much for coming on, and I look forward to staying in touch with you down the road. Thank you, David. Hey there, before you go, I just want to thank you for listening to the show. 
We hope you enjoyed the episode today. And if you did, please, please, please take a moment to rate and review the show. Those ratings and reviews help us to attract the very best guests. And we want to bring you the best guests in the industry. Also, we're active on social media. So be sure to follow us on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. There you can stay connected with us and up to date on all of our latest content. Lastly, don't forget to check out our website, theleadsponsor.com. We've got some free trainings and resources there that will help you grow as a leader and an investor. Again, thank you so much for supporting the show. We'll see you next week.